Listener Production. Welcome back, A Life of Greatness listeners. This is my summer series. We're going back into the archives for some of my most memorable conversations. This is my first chat with journalist Johan Hari. And in this conversation, he's really raw and vulnerable and opens up about his intense childhood trauma and his journey to recovery from that. You know, I've gotten to know Johan well over the last few conversations and he genuinely is such a top guy with a wealth of knowledge. Our brand new season of A Life of Greatness will be back on Feb 6th with the most amazing interviews. But in the meantime, please enjoy this very moving conversation with Johan Hari. Journalist and author Johan Hari is one of our wisest voices on the topics of anxiety and depression. His book, Lost Connections, teaches us that human capacities like friendship and love, teaching and learning have tremendous, constant, practical force, giving our species the grit to endure through hard times and even evolve in the long run. Johan says when individuals see themselves as part of a connected tapestry of wider meaning, they feel much better about their lives. In this heartfelt conversation, Johan and I traverse the debate about the use of antidepressants, the lost art of connection and the power of listening. One of the ways we need to think differently about depression and anxiety is we need to understand that they are not malfunctions, they are signals. The World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, says that if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not in the main a machine with broken parts, You're a human being with unmet needs. And we need to listen to the signal because it will lead us to understand the needs you have that are not currently being met and it will help us find a way to meet them. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Johan Hari is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Chasing the Scream. In its essence, this conversation is about the stories we tell ourselves and the power of meeting others and yourself in love. Packed with life lessons acquired by Johan's extraordinary experiences and professional career, this episode is a masterclass on how to keep pushing when it matters most. May this discussion bring healing and hope and remind you how powerful you really are. Johan Hari, there is so much to talk to you about today. But let's start at the beginning. Take us back to your childhood, how did it shape the person and the work that you were doing now? Oh God, that's a very deep question. And it's funny, when I started working on the book, I don't think I would have had anything like the insight I have on this now. So I wrote the book because there were these two mysteries that I was really kept thinking about and was quite frightened to look into. The first mystery is that I'm I'm now 42 years old and every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have gone up in Britain, in Australia and across the Western world. And I wanted to understand like why, right? 
Why is this happening to us? Why is it that with each year that passes, more and more of us seem to be finding it harder to get through the day? I mean, the figures for Australia are staggering on mm. depression and anxiety, and that was before COVID. And obviously, as we all know, it's massively increased during COVID. So I wanted to understand that. And I wanted to understand it because of a very personal reason that speaks directly to your question, which is that I remember when I was a teenager, I remember going to my doctor and explaining that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me and I didn't understand it. I couldn't control it. I felt quite ashamed of it. And my doctor, who was a very well, well-meaning person, told me a story that I now realise was really oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why some people get like this. Some people just naturally have a chemical imbalance in their brain. You're clearly one of them. All you need to do is take this drug. It gave me a drug called Siroxat and you'll be fine. And the drug gave me some relief, but my depression kept coming back and I kept taking higher and higher doses. And so at the end of the, well, 13 years of taking the maximum possible dose, I was just sort of asking myself, well, what, hey, why do I feel like this? I'm doing everything that I'm being told to do by the story that our culture tells about depression and anxiety. And secondly, um, you know, why did I feel like this in the first place? And why do so many other people feel like this? So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world, meeting the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And I learned a huge amount that I'm never going to get into in this conversation. But it really led me back for myself Many of these, I learned the scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are in our biology, so my doctor wasn't totally wrong, but most of them are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. Of course, once you understand that, it opens up a whole different set of solutions. But for me, I realized some of several of those nine factors were playing out in my own life, but it really led me back to thinking a lot about my, my own childhood. I'd grown up in a family where there was a lot of addiction, um, and it was quite chaotic and at times it could be quite violent and quite frightening. Um, and when I was a kid, my mother was very unwell and my dad was in a different country and I didn't see him very much. And um, in the midst of that, I experienced some quite extreme abuse from an adult in my life. Um, and it's a funny thing, I didn't... I didn't... Um, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to engage with it. I didn't want to give this individual power over me now. But actually I learned, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but there's a, from a series of incredible experts, I learned that also one of the causes of depression and anxiety for which there's scientific evidence is trauma. Mm. And I learned a lot about that and what I learned really, really helped me. So anyway, that was a very long answer. And I learned so crucially about trauma. It's not the trauma itself that destroys you. It's the shame about the yeah. trauma. And having places to release that shame is a profound antidepressant. Do you remember what age you started feeling sad? Well, um, sadness is a necessary part of all human existence, mm. right? So it's really important to stress that. I mean, one of the best definitions of depression that I got when I was working on the book was this an amazing woman named Dr. Tyrrell Harris who made incredible breakthroughs in our understanding of depression in the 1970s. I can talk about what they were in a minute if you want. But, but Dr. Harris said to me, everyone experiences sadness sometimes. Depression is when that sadness spreads over your psyche like an oil spill and it's all you can see. So for me personally, like everyone, sadness and setbacks are not only an inevitable part of life, but actually a healthy part of life. We live in a world with limits. 
we counter limits. Sometimes those limits make us sad. Um, and there are many sad things about human existence that are just inextricable. You will die. I will die. Everyone we love will die. We will all be forgotten, right? There are some things that are inherently sad. Um, so I, I experienced a lot of normal sadness. Um, for me, there was, you know, there was also unusual and extreme forms of trauma that most people don't experience. But um, yeah. Have you made peace with the trauma now? I went to interview this man. Can I tell you his story? Because I think it helps to yeah, love it it. helps to explain this. I went to interview um, a man called Dr. Vincent Felitti, who was part of making a huge breakthrough in depression and anxiety. So it, it, he's the core of the breakthrough that led to the understanding of one of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections. So in the mid-1980s, uh, Dr. Felitti was working in San Diego in California and he was approached by Kaiser Permanente, who were the big not-for-profit medical provider, one of them in the city and in California generally. And Kaiser Permanente were like, look, we've got a really big problem and we don't know what to do about it. Please help us. And the problem they had at the time was the rise of obesity. Obesity had been going up and up for more than two decades by then. It subsequently massively increased, as we all know. And they said to him, look, we don't know what's causing this and we don't know what to do about it. We're doing the obvious things. We give people nutritional advice. We, we, even if we give them personal trainers, nothing seems to be working. Can we give you some money and just figure out what the hell we should do? Just do blue skies research. So Dr. Felitti starts to, I know at a certain point some listeners will be thinking, what the hell has this got to do with depression? Bear with me because it led to an incredible breakthrough on depression and anxiety specifically. So Dr. Felitti starts to work with 200 severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And he's thinking, well, what can I do? What, what can I do about this? And one day he had an idea that seems, and in many ways is quite stupid. He asked himself, what would happen if really obese people literally stopped eating? And we gave them like vitamin shots, like vitamin C, so they didn't get scurvy. We gave them, you know, the necessary nutrients via injections. Would they just burn through the fat supplies in their bodies and get down to a healthy weight? So obviously with a ton of medical supervision, they tried it. And incredibly, at first, it worked. There's a woman, I'm going to call her Susan to protect her medical confidentiality. It's not a real name. She went down from being more than 400 pounds, where she'd been for years, to 138 pounds. It was incredible. She's saying to Dr. Felitti, you've saved my life. Um, her family are ringing Dr. Felitti saying, my God, you saved our, our daughter. This is incredible. And there were comparable weight losses in other parts of the program. And then one day something happened that no one expected. Susan cracked. She, she went to her local KFC or whatever it was. She starts obsessively eating. And before long, she's back at a dangerous weight. And Dr. Felitti called her in. He said, Susan, what happened? What happened? She looked down. She said, I don't know. I don't know. I said to her, well, tell me about the day that you cracked. Did anything happen that day that hadn't happened to you any other day? Turned out something had happened that day that had never happened to Susan. Yeah. She was in a bar and a man hit on her. Not in a horrible predatory way, in a really nice way. He started chatting her up. And she felt really freaked out. And she goes and starts eating. So Dr. Felitti's thinking about this and he asked Susan a question he'd never asked any of his patients before in any depth. He said, well, when did you start to put on your weight? In Susan's case, it was when she was 11. So he said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were nine or when you were 14? Anything in particular in the run-up to you gaining weight? And Susan looked down and she said, well, 
that's when my grandfather started raping me. Mm. Um, Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the program. He discovered that 60% of them had put on their, made their extreme weight gain in the aftermath of being sexually abused or assaulted. And at first he's thinking, what, what is this? And so it makes sense. As Susan explained it to him really well. She said, overweight is overlooked. And that's what I need to be. This thing that seems so irrational, and of course it's bad for your health in the long term, being overweight, in fact was performing a really important function for these people. It was protecting them from sexual attention, which they had a very good cause to want to be protected from. Dr. Felitti realized, he said, it's like for years there's been a fire and we've been focusing on the smoke, yeah. right? Rather than the fire. But this is a small study, right? It's 200 people. It's hard to draw big conclusions. So Dr. Felitti went to the Center for Disease Control and he got a really big budget to do a much bigger study. And this is where we get the breakthrough with depression and anxiety. Everyone who came for healthcare in San Diego in a whole year was given a questionnaire. The first part said, have you had, um, did you experience any of these problems when you were a kid? Things like um, sexual abuse, neglect, physical abuse, that kind of thing. Second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? At first, it was just going to say obesity, but at the last minute, lucky for us, they added loads of other stuff like suicide attempts, depression, um, uh, addiction. And when they added up the figures, at first they're like, no, we've made a mistake, do it all again. Figures were so crazy. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to be depressed, anxious, obese, or addicted. But it was when you got into the multiple categories, the figures just went wild. If you had six categories of childhood trauma, which is my number, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to ha um, have an injecting drug problem. I mean, that's just wild, wow. right? It, it, but, but, but I remember when I went to interview Dr. Felitti the first time in San Diego, I remember going to see him. He's a lovely man, right? He was like maybe 81 when I interviewed him. And really admirable. If you met him, I guarantee you, you'd like him. <laughs> <laughs> and I found myself getting so angry, I actually left, I, I ended the interview early and I went to the beach in San Diego and I was raging. And I was thinking, why am I so angry? And of course, it comes back to what we were saying before. I didn't want to think about this. But yeah. the reason why I'm glad I went back and interviewed him again is because of what he discovered next, which to me is the most important. So after they'd done this study of all these people in San Diego, suddenly all these doctors had this data on people's childhood trauma. So the doctors were told, don't call the person back in, but next time they come in with a problem, say to them something like, I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever it was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people didn't want to talk about it, but 60% did. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. And then it was randomized. Some of them were told, I can send you to a therapist to talk about it more. What was fascinating was just a five minute conversation of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry this happened to you. This should never have happened led to a significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who referred to a therapist had even more, which fits with this much wider body of evidence we now have. Like I say, it's not the trauma, it's the shame. Yeah. And actually reducing shame. One of the things I really learned in the course of the book is I think we should call anything that reduces depression an antidepressant. For some people, that will include drugs. 
but we need to radically expand that menu of options to actually deal with a lot of the other underlying causes of depression and anxiety. And I would argue that approach that they took in San Diego, telling people this should never have happened to you. It was really wrong. You should have been rescued then. You shouldn't feel any shame. And then more help further down, down the line. That is an antidepressant. So in terms of myself, I think, you know, people, almost everyone who experiences childhood abuse is told by the abuser, you made me do this. You deserve this, right? I, I, I'm doing this because of something you did, right? Um, and although, of course, as an adult, I... I always rationally knew that was crazy. You, inevitably, you internalize those voices to some degree when you're very young and you think you don't deserve to be treated well. Or, And I think going on this journey, and of course, it's only one of the nine causes and some of the others played out in my own life and then lots of others play out for other people and lots of depressed people, of course, haven't experienced childhood abuse. Um, going on this journey and learning all this and, and actually talking about it publicly and seeing the reactions of people, which are invariably sympathetic and agreeing not like no one goes oh maybe you did deserve it you know um has been a really important um part of overcoming that for me I wouldn't say it still has no it doesn't have an effect on my life but it doesn't still play out absolutely does but yeah it's 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 been massively helpful did an authority figure say to you that they were sorry for your trauma yeah yeah I've had that a lot, you know, and and just, I mean, in terms of authority figures, you know, authority figures in my life are usually not sort of credential professionals. They're just kind of people I respect, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I did also have Oprah say it to me, so oh, you can't get a much higher no. authority figure than Oprah, right? So I was like, okay, I can't reasonably ask for more at this point, right? Psychologist, psychiatrist stand to the side. If Oprah says exactly. that, exactly. you're winning in life. So you have your amazing book, Lost Connections, and you start the book with this fascinating story about being in Vietnam and having food poisoning. But there was this (laughs) real gem of the story that was delivered to you by a doctor, and I think it's so pertinent. He said, you need your nausea. It will tell us what is wrong with you. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So it's funny, I was thinking about this in relation to because I spent a lot of time in Australia, as you know, and um, I've never entirely understood, given that Australia has 25 million people or whatever, the 23 million, whatever the population is, I've never entirely understood why 50% of tourists everywhere in the world appear to be Australian. <laughs> when there's only 20, like, a little bit more than 20 million people in Australia. Anyway, but yeah, the... Um, Yes, yeah, so I was in Vietnam doing research for a completely different book that I still haven't written. Um, and um, this is ages ago as well. I'm working on that one for a long period. Um, and so for part of that, I had to go and track down survivors of the American war on Vietnam, on Southeast Asia, in various parts of Vietnam. So I was based in Hanoi, but I was going out to these different parts across the country and had a brilliant fixer called Huang, who was like translating for me and finding the people for me. He's a Vietnamese journalist. And one day, we, we've been working really hard. I came back. I was in Hanoi and I was walking in an alleyway and I was hungry and I went to buy an apple and I just can't haggle at all, right? So I paid like $5 for this one apple. And I go back to my hotel, which was called the Very Charming Hotel. Uh, and I sit in my room and I knew, okay, I knew good tourist etiquette. You obviously have to wash all the, ap- the apple thoroughly before you eat it. So I washed the apple, I bit into it and it tasted chemically and weird. But I was tired and a bit lazy and I just thought, I'll just eat it anyway. So I ate it 
And you can see where this is going. The next day, I was, I looked like Linda Blair in The Exorcist, right? I'm just like <laughs> vomiting. I won't go into all the other details, but I'm sure you could all imagine. Um, and it was just awful. So I was like really sick for like, uh, for like three days. But like, I basically lived on a diet of fried chicken in East London for a decade in my 20s. So I was like, I have had food poisoning before. This is fine. I know what to do. And on the fourth day, I didn't have that much time in Vietnam. I was still really ill, but I phoned Huang and I said, look, I'm just going to take some stuff to bung me up. I, ha I have to do these interviews. So we drove five miles out of Hanoi into the countryside and, and we sit down and I'm interviewing a woman who I think she was in her late 80s, who was the only woman in her village who along with her children survived the Vietnam War. So it's this great interview. I'm sitting there talking to her. And about 20 minutes in, the room starts to like spin around me and I start feeling violently and I basically just explode from both ends in this poor woman's heart, right? And I've got all this on tape as well, right? So I'm sort of going, that's really interesting. Would you say, it was just like horrific. So anyway, I'm sort of lying there spasming and I say to, after I finish this 20 minutes in, I say to Huang, just throw me in the car, we'll drive back to Hanoi. And the old woman's saying something to him and he translates and he says, Johan, she says you really need to go to the hospital. And I said, no, 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 just drive me back to Hanoi. And he said, Johan, this is the only person who survived the Vietnam War in this village. I'm going to listen to her health advice over yours. We're going to the hospital. So we go to this tiny little hospital and Huang completely lies to them and says, I'm this really important Westerner and if I die, it'll disgrace Vietnam. And... Um, Anyway, so I'm lying there and I, I just had the most extreme, I, I felt so unwell, but I had the most extreme nausea I had ever had. So the room was literally spinning. It was just this very extreme. And I kept saying to the doctors, they're sort of jabbing me and trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And I kept saying to the doctors, give me something to stop this nausea. Please give me something. And the doctor said exactly that line that you said. He said, you need your nausea. It's a signal. It'll tell us what's wrong with you. Mm. Right. And even then, as I was lying there and I thought, oh, I hope I don't die because that's a really interesting thought. Right. <laughs> and then anyway, what happened is they figured out, obviously, that this apple I'd eaten, apparently this is good advice for anyone listening. In a lot of parts of Vietnam, you can't just wash the apple. You have to cut the peel off because it's so treated with pesticides, um, which is what made me so ill. But I had basically for three and a half days not retained any water. So it was like I had been in the desert for three and a half days. My kidneys had stopped working. And I remember saying to the doctor, as we were leaving, okay, later, once they treated me, what would have happened if Wang had just driven me back to Hanoi? And he said, oh, your kidneys have stopped working. You would have died on the journey. <gasps> and I remember thinking, oh, you need to listen to your nausea. It's a signal, right? If I had tried to shut down that signal, I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you now. Yeah. And it, that really helped me. That I kept thinking, it took a long time for me to see the significance of that. I was interviewing all these experts all over the world about depression and anxiety, what causes them. It was only quite late in the day. I kept thinking that story, but I couldn't quite see why. And then I realized, oh, one of the reframings we need to do about depression and anxiety, one of the ways we need to think differently about depression and anxiety is we need to understand that they are not malfunctions. They are signals. The World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, says that if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy. You're not in the main a machine with broken parts 
You're a human being with unmet needs. And we need to listen to the signal because it will lead us to understand the needs you have that are not currently being met and it will help us find a way to meet them. One thing that really stood out to me in your book, Lost Connections, is you, like you mentioned, you were taking antidepressants for 13 years. But one thing I found so bizarre is that your doctor never actually spoke to you about how you felt, your environment or anything. You just went there and told him you felt sad and and he just gave you antidepressants. I mean, why is it so significant to talk more about the person's story? Well, and not just the person's story, but the environment we all live yeah. in, right? Um, I mean, it's interesting. I think there's been a real breakthrough in thinking about this if in the last few years, in the last, well, in the last 18 months for a lot of people, because essentially for 20 years, we were told a story, which is that if you're depressed and anxious, it's because something has gone wrong internally inside your brain. And um, the solution is to fix it internally inside your brain. Now, there are real biological contributions to depression and anxiety that I write about in the book in detail. And chemical antidepressants give some people some relief. Anyone listening, if you're one of those people getting that relief, all I have to say to you is carry on and give you love and hugs, right? Um, But we have to be honest, that's one small part of a much bigger picture, right? This is a problem that goes much deeper than our biology and it requires solutions. For most people, not everyone, some people, the chemical antidepressants will solve the problem. But for most people, they will require solutions that go deeper than our chemical antidepressants as well. And there was a moment when this really fell into fell into place for me. I interviewed a South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in Cambodia. They'd never had them before. He wasn't studying it. He was studying something else, but he would just happen to be there. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, were like, what are antidepressants? They'd never heard of them. So Dr. Summerfield explained, and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he was like, what do you mean? They thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy like St. John's wort, Jinko biloba, something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. And I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic to go back and work in the field where you got blown up. The guy started to cry a lot. He was really sad. After a while, he was so distressed, he just refused to get out of bed. This is when the Cambodian doctors told Dr. Summerfield, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, well, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with this man. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. In fact, He only had to listen to the guy for five minutes to see why he was so upset. One of the people in the community figured, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. And the doctor said to Derek Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's an internal biological malfunction, that sounds like a bad joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively 
from this individual unscientific anecdote is what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, has been telling us for years based on the very best science, right? So there are three kinds of cause, and this is in all the psychiatry textbooks, in theory, it's meant to be how we respond to this problem. There are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. There are biological contributions, like your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems, for example, but they don't write your destiny. There are psychological problems like trauma would be one we've already talked about. There's lots more. And then there are social problems like loneliness. I suspect we'll come to that because it's so relevant to what we're all experiencing at the moment, particularly with the nightmare Australia is going through. So this is called the biopsychosocial model, right? Biological, psychological, social causes. But as Professor Lawrence Kiermaier, who's at McGill University in Montreal, said to me, in theory, we have a biopsychosocial model. In practice, we have a bio, bio, bio model. People come in with this problem. We tell them it's a biological problem. We offer them a biological solution. Now, there's real value in that for some people. Don't misunderstand me. There are real biological contributions which interact with all these other contributions. And for some people, chemical antidepressants give real relief. But precisely because this is such a partial view of what's going on, we're missing a lot of the, the, the problem. Think about this in relation to COVID, right? Depression, anxiety, and addiction have exploded mm. in the last year and a half all over the world. Now, it is not that in the last year and a half, by a mysterious coincidence at the same time as COVID, all our brains just spontaneously became chemically imbalanced, yeah. right? There's a different way of thinking about it. So everyone listening knows they have natural physical needs. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd obviously be in real trouble. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this was true well before COVID that we had built a culture that was good at many things and many things are better than in the past. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting some of these deep underlying psychological needs. And then COVID comes along. So we have, a, obviously, I don't think people need me to tell them, but we have a global pandemic. And in order to suppress that pandemic, we have to physically separate. And that was necessary and important and it remains necessary and important in many places. But the result of that was that the decline in our the meeting of our psychological needs that have been happening for decades suddenly massively accelerates, right? So loneliness has been exploding all throughout my lifetime, but now it's just gone through the roof, for example, to name just one of the causes. Um, and what's happened? It led to a huge amount of depression, anxiety, and addiction. And I think it's it's really hard now for people to claim if someone's depressed in these circumstances, oh, there's just some biological problem with them, right? It's not their biology went haywire, our society went haywire. Yeah. Now, if that was true of COVID, we should be able to see that was true before COVID. And crucially, that should guide us in how we respond to depression and anxiety as we emerge from COVID, because there are very practical solutions that I saw all over the world being put into practice that emerge when you understand depression and anxiety in this deeper, more complex, more truthful way. In your experience, and especially from a COVID perspective, knowing we're having lockdowns and you and I spoke about it just before we came on air, how do we battle loneliness when it is hard to be able to connect face-to-face -face with people? It's funny you said that about lockdowns because actually for a lot of the um, pandemic, 
I was in Las Vegas because I'm writing a book about a series of crimes that happened in Las Vegas. And Vegas just did not shut down apart from that first month. So it's a slightly weird thing where I spent a lot of the pandemic surrounded by people whose response to a global pandemic was to say, hey, this is a great time to go to Caesar's Palace. And it's like, okay, so I've not had the typical pandemic experience. I, I, um, I accept that. But um, so I think we need to understand loneliness differently um, and its relationship to depression differently. Um, so... To understand loneliness, I interviewed huge numbers of people who were experts on it, but there was a particular man, a completely amazing person who sadly recently died, called Professor John Cassiopo, who was at the University of Chicago. And um, Professor Cassiopo um, discovered lots of really important things, but he'd, he proved two really important things, although they might go into the slightly no-shit Sherlock category of scientific discoveries when you hear them, but he was the first person to prove it. Firstly, that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. And secondly, loneliness has massively increased and that's driving a lot of our depression and anxiety epidemics. And I remember trying to understand why this is. And I remember Professor Cassiopo saying to me one day, why do we exist, right? You, me, everyone watching and listening, why are we here? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. A lot of the time, they weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. This was our superpower as a species. We figured out how to band and work together, right? Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe, right? If you think about the circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe you were depressed and anxious for really good reasons, right? You were in terrible danger. You were very likely to die. You would be unable to keep yourself alive if you were in any danger. You got injured, you would just die, right? So loneliness, as Professor Cassiopo put it, loneliness evolved as a signal for you to get back to the tribe, get back to the group, right? And that's a very sensible signal in the circumstances where we evolved. That's our nature. But we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, to tell ourselves that you should go it alone, actually, that you, that you should think about yourself primarily not as a member of a group, but primarily as, a, as an isolated individual. And actually, Australia is just off the scale in international comparisons when you look at loneliness. There's a, a wonderful guy you've probably spoken to called Professor Hugh Mackay, who, who does really good research in Australia on this. Um, and, and, and I was thinking a lot about, about this... This huge rise of loneliness, it obviously, as you ask in relation to COVID, right? And there was one thing that, and, and remind me to say that there was, there's people who've built solutions to depression based on this problem that I'll come to in a minute, doctors. But one thing that really helped me during COVID, I went back and I was listening again to some of my interviews with Professor Cassiopo, partly because I was feeling lonely, ironically. Um, <laughs> and um, he said something that I really thought a lot about, and it's in the book, but I thought much more about it afterwards. So when he began studying loneliness, this was in the 70s or maybe the early 80s, he, he bumped into this sort of challenge, which is if you say to someone, if I said to you, are you lonely? You would not, not struggle to understand what I was saying and yeah. you would be able to answer, right? So it's, it's something that everyone has an intuitive, everyone who speaks English has an intuitive understanding of the word loneliness and there's a similar word in all languages. Um, but weirdly, so he thought at first, okay, I want to study loneliness what I'll study is how many social connections a person has, right? How many people they spoke to 
on an average day. That would be a good sort of rough way of studying loneliness. But when he did that, he, he discovered it didn't work. Actually, how lonely you feel does not have a very strong relationship with how many people you speak to in a day. And he's like, oh, that's weird. Why, why would that be, right? He's trying to figure it out. And as he thought about it, um, uh, he sort of realised, and we've all had experiences of being surrounded by people and being lonely. So you think about, for example, I remember the very first time I came to Australia, I went straight to Sydney Harbour. I was surrounded by people, but I didn't know any of them, right? So I was in a crowd, but I felt quite lonely yeah. because I was extremely jet lagged and quite lonely because they don't know me. I don't know them. There's no relationship there, right? We're strangers in a crowd. So Professor Cassiopo starts studying this more. He's like, well, what are the circumstances that undo loneliness? And what he discovered was key to ending loneliness is reciprocity. So a reciprocal relationship is where I give to you, you give to me, we feel we can depend on each other. Obviously, we don't measure it out. But so think of an example, you know, a romantic relationship, right? Generally, you feel, all right, if my partner got cancer, I'd be there for him. If he got cancer, you know, and vice versa, right? The we, or And obviously much more minor things than, than cancer, that we look out for each other, we give to each other. We don't measure out how much we, you know, at the end of the week go, well, I spent four hours on you this week and you spent two hours <laughs> on me. You know, you don't think that yeah. way. But you have a sense of reciprocity. And of course, everyone hopefully listening will be able to think of someone they have reciprocal relationships with, their, their friends, um, colleagues, people they love you have a sense of reciprocity. So actually, if you have a reciprocal relationship, that will go a very long way in, in reducing and, and ending loneliness. It's funny you say that because as you're talking, I'm thinking about my old self 10 years ago. And I used to be a social queen, always on the phone. And whenever there was a moment to talk on the phone, I was on the phone and had so many friends of, from all walks of life. But... I never felt fulfilled. I don't know if I felt lonely, but I never felt fulfilled. And when my life changed that I've talked a lot about on the podcast mm. and I deeply got into self-improvement work, spirituality, all this stuff, my friendships now are so strong and so deep that I don't barely speak to anyone on the phone, but when I do, it is so fulfilling and just that is enough to fill your cup for days, weeks on end, because the exchange is so different. And as you said, it's reciprocated. I never feel like, oh, you know, I'm putting, I'm putting all this effort in and the other person is it. I don't have any relationships like that in my life yet. 10 years ago, I had a lot of them. And it's what you're saying is so mm. powerful. That's so interesting. It reminds me, uh, remind me to come back to loneliness in a minute, but what you just said reminds me, something that really helped me to end my depression as well. A different piece of research that I learned about um, and, and interviewed the people involved. So there was a, a person called Brett Ford, who, uh, Dr. Brett Ford, who is a, at the time she was a professor in Berkeley, she's in Toronto now. And, and Dr. Ford was part, she was one of many scientists who were part of this really big study. They wanted to figure out something quite simple. Let's imagine that you decided you were going to spend two hours a day trying to make yourself happier. Would it work? Would you actually become happier? And they did this research studying people's attempts to become happier in four countries. It was the United States, Taiwan, Russia, and Japan. And there were obviously huge numbers of scientific teams involved. And when they added it up, at first they found something really weird. In the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, 
on average, it doesn't work. But in the other countries, Taiwan, Russia, and Japan, if you try to make yourself happier, on average, you do become happier. And they're like, well, why would that be? What's going on? And when they looked at it, what they discovered was in the United States, and I'm pretty sure this would be true of Britain and Australia too, in the United States, if you try to make yourself happier deliberately, generally you do something for yourself. You work harder to get a promotion. You buy, you treat yourself by buying something and show it off on Instagram, whatever it might be. You do something individualistic for me. In the other countries, on average, of course there are exceptions on both sides, on average, um, if you try to make yourself deliberately happier, you do something for someone else, mm. your friends, your family, your community. So we have an instinctively individualistic idea of what it means to be happy. And they have an instinctively collective idea of what it means to be happy. And it turns out our story about happiness just doesn't work very well. Yeah. In fact, a species of individualists would have died out on the savannas of Africa. We wouldn't be having this conversation now because they wouldn't have been able to band together and form a tribe and a group and work together to do the things they had to do to survive. And it sounds to me like what you're describing is a change that you made 10 years ago in part. I'm sure there were lots of things going on, but a shift from that individualistic idea of happiness to a more collective idea of happiness. And for me, this is something we can do under COVID. Now, it's much better to do it face-to-face, of course, but... You know, in the past, when I felt myself feeling down, often what I would do would be to try to try to have some individualistic achievement, some show-offy thing, you know, achieve some big impressive thing, right? Um, and now, and of course, there's still a big part of my character that's like that. <laughs> uh, not that I am achieving it, but I'm trying. Um, but, but now, when I, when I feel down, one of the things I often will do is just leave my phone at home and go and sit with someone that I like and listen to them and figure out what they need and how they could be helped. And that's actually a much more effective, I'm not Oprah, I can't turn up and give them a car, but I can leave my phone at home and listen to them, right? And really be present and really think about them and their lives and their needs and, and, and show up, right? And that is a much more effective strategy for, um, making yourself feel good yeah. and not being depressed and anxious than this kind of individualistic, poisonously individualistic story about happiness that we're told all the time in our culture. You spoke before about how it is so unbelievably important to have a sense of purpose and that was something that brought a lot of people joy. Yeah. So this was this is another one of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections. And it, interesting, if you understand this cause, it leads to something very practical that everyone can do under COVID. Everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. I don't say that with any superiority. If, if you could see behind my laptop, there's literally a McDonald's wrapper. So uh, no, no, you have such a glowing, healthy look that I can tell this is not true of you, but sadly for me it is. Um, and, but interestingly, Something similar has happened to our values. A kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is basically what he said, right? But weirdly, nobody had scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I got to know in the research for the book named Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And Professor Kasser discovered loads of really important things, but for the purposes of our conversation, there's two really important ones. Firstly, he discovered the philosophers were right. 
the more your life is guided by a desire to get money, show off, uh, be envied, the kind of values you get from Instagram and advertising and everything like them, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a significant amount. And we can talk about why later. And secondly, he discovered all throughout your lifetime and my lifetime, those values have been increasing and increasing. And the increase in those values matches the increase in depression and anxiety in the wider population. So in, in some sense, we are all being trained to look for happiness in the wrong places. We're being fed a kind of KFC for the soul, right? The the and as, it, it, I remember when I was learning about this, thinking, you know, in some ways this is like unbelievably banal and obvious, mm. right? Anyone listening, if we stop anyone in the street in Melbourne, I know you would be arrested if you tried to do it literally now, but in yeah. a normal time, you stopped anyone in the street in Melbourne and you said, you know, are you gonna when you lie on your deathbed, will you think about all the likes you got on Instagram and all the shoes you bought? Or will you think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life, yeah. right? It'd be a very odd person who named Instagram, right? But as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, right? More 18-month-year-old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. So from the moment we're born, we're filled with this idea, if you don't feel good, hey, we've got a solution for that. Treat yourself buy something, display it, right? We're, we're trained to think in these junk values for a very young age, even though at some level, we all know that's not, you only have to meet any rich people to see, you know, yeah. they're not, they're, they're the most, I've met a lot of very rich people and I've got to tell you, they're the most miserable people you'll ever meet, yes. right? Not all of them, but a huge, but, uh, disproportionately miserable. Um, so this leads to, this is a good illustration of a really important thing that I learned for Lost Connections is when you understand the causes of depression and anxiety better, you can find better solutions that should be offered alongside the option of the existing solutions like chemical antidepressants, which, which do help some people. Um, so for junk values, there are some sort of big society-wide solutions. So for example, I went to Sao Paulo in Brazil where they yes. just banned outdoor advertising, right? Just like this makes people feel like shit. It, advertising is like the ultimate frenemy. It says, oh, babe, I love you. If only you didn't stink so much. I love you. I think you're great. Why don't you try this deodorant? I think you're great, right? They banned it. People felt much better. But I think there's, a, there's something that's really relevant to COVID. So to explain it, uh, and, and that I've been doing during COVID has really helped me. Uh, and it, to explain it, I have to just backtrack and explain something that the way it was discovered. So there's a financial advisor in Minneapolis named Nathan Dungan, who I interviewed. He's a great guy. And Nathan gives people, um, families, middle-class families advice on their budgeting, basically. And um, so, you know, he tells you how to draw up a family budget and stick within it. And one day Nathan got contacted by a high school. It was kind of in a middle-class neighborhood, not rich, not poor. And the high school said, look, we've got a real problem. Please help us. The kids in our school are getting obsessed with getting the latest Nike sneakers, the latest... Um, iPhone, like just really expensive things. And their parents often can't afford it. And the kids are just losing their shit when they can't get it. So will you come in and explain budgeting to these kids, right? So Nathan comes in and explains budgeting and quite quickly realizes these kids do not give a shit about budgets. They're just like, whatever, I need the iPhone, right? So he's thinking about this. He's thinking about, well, why are these kids desperately craving these things uh, like Nike sneakers? So he does this experiment. He learned about Professor Casser's work and he teams up with Professor Casser who discovered junk values and he does this incredible research. So what they did, it's very simple. 
they got the parents and their kids to come to a meeting. I think it was once every two weeks for four or six months. And the first meeting, they just say to them, can you, and the parents and kids are together in groups. They say to them, can you just draw up a list of everything you've got to have? And they don't define what that means. So they start drawing up lists. And of course, everyone initially says you've got to have a home and, you know, stuff like that. Food. But quite quickly, they start listing, both the parents and the kids start listing things you haven't got to have, like Nike sneakers, right? Yeah. So they go, when they pick out the things on the list that are sort of not the essentials and they say, okay, tell me, describe how your life would be different if you got this thing, right? Let's say Nike sneakers. And interestingly, nobody gave the kind of ostensible reason for having this. So no one said, well, I'm a basketball player and I'll be able to jump higher, right? No one said Mm. that. They said things like, well, people will envy me or people will want me to be part of their group, right? It doesn't take long to get people to, uh, after people have articulated these underlying assumptions before they go, huh, why do I feel like I'll deserve to be part of a group if I've got this piece of plastic with a little blue (laughs) tick on it, right? People start to think about where does this come from? These ideas are implanted in our head by advertising. But what happened next, I think, is even more important. So they say to them, and I just urge everyone listening to just try, pause the podcast and try this. Write down, they just said to them, write down, talk about and write down a moment in your life when you've had a feeling of meaning and purpose. And again, they don't define it beyond that. Just, just anything. And people come back and they describe it. And, you know, there's a whole range of things. Some people said it was playing the guitar. Some people said it was helping someone they'd seen in the street who'd fallen over sometime. Some said it was, for me, it would be writing, you know, everyone had something. And then they said, okay, how could you build more of your life around pursuing these moments of meaning and purpose and less of your life around pursuing these moments of like just buying shit you don't need to make people jealous, right? And then as the weeks and months went on, they just check in. They have conversations. We don't have conversations like this in our culture very much. They're conversations about how did you do in the last few weeks? Did you manage to do it? Or did you relapse into, you know, 3am shopping or whatever it might be online? What's fascinating was Professor Kassa monitored them scientifically. Just having these conversations over a period of time as part of a group led to a significant shift in people's values away from junk values towards meaningful values. And that correlates with a significant fall in depression and anxiety. And so what I would say to people is one thing we can do under COVID, one thing I do, first of every month, me and five of my friends, we have to do it obviously over Zoom at the moment, um, is we just have that conversation, right? Because we're all a mixture of these junk values and meaningful values. And you have to be to get through life. But we live in a culture that is constantly pushing us in the direction of junk values. And just having those conversations where you check in and you go, okay, what did you do in the last month? What did you do that was meaningful? What Did you make a choice at that moment when you could have done something meaningful, but instead you chose, you know, did you on Hinge, did you choose the man who was really hot against the guy who was slightly less hot, but more interesting? Oh, probably you're veering towards, you know, the junk values, less than the meaningful values. Um, having those conversations helps to reshape your life and move you towards greater meaning, which we know relates to much, much less depression and anxiety. What do you think is the most meaningful thing, and I know you've done a lot, in your life? I think it's the times, um, you know, so many people have helped me in my life at Mm. different stages all throughout my life. It's the times that I've 
shown up and helped people. I th- the first thing that came into my head is one of my oldest friends. It's one of my closest friends when I was a teenager. Her name's Natalie. Um, we were really close friends from when we were like 16 to when we were 20. And then we lost touch as you do sometimes. And um, four years ago, um, I, I learned from a mutual friend that both her sons had brain tumours, her young sons. And um, I just went to see her and I kept showing up all through this terrible experience. And one of her sons, Freddie, who was amazing, sadly passed away. And one of her sons, Arthur, has made an incredible recovery. And I think showing up for Natalie, showing up, I could think of lots of other times I've shown up for people who were going through difficult things. And it's funny, actually, I think one of the few... I would not recommend going through a violent and and traumatic childhood, but one of the few, one of the good things about it is I think it does give some people a sort of capacity to be present with people's pain. Yeah. Um, So for me, I think it's been the times I've shown up for people and it's not like I did anything, right? It's not like I did anything in the sense of like, I mean, okay, I managed to help Natalie go to this amazing um, centre for people who've been through traumatic grief run by my friend Joanne Cassiatore, who I actually met through doing Lost Connections, writing Lost Connections. So there were a few minor things I could do, but actually most of it is not doing something, right? It's just being present and, 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 and making sure the person's not alone and really listening to them and not trying to fix it in a yeah. situation like that, right? So lots of small times like that where you can just be present for me because I'm so conscious of the times that I've been through hard times and I've had so many amazing friends who just showed up and were just like, well, I'm going to fucking sit here, you know, and and we're, I'm just going to be here for you and you can sit there and moan if you want and I'll be here, right? And sometimes that's all you need. It's all you need. How good does it feel when you have gone through something? I mean, I had it not long ago with my best friend. I remember something happened and I called her and I was so upset and I just was bawling and she was there to just listen to everything I had to say and you get off, you just feel so supported and so loved and, yeah, it's that it's that feeling of just having someone there, someone to listen and someone who exudes love to you. I think, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot the last few days because... A book that I've been working on for 10 years is, this, I'm not meant to talk about it too much, but it, it, it's about Las Vegas and a series of crimes that happened in Las Vegas. And there was a, an incredible couple called Tommy and Shay who who um, lived in the tunnels beneath Las Vegas, who I got to know over years and really love um, and became very close to. And in f- four days time, five days time, it'll be exactly a year since Tommy was murdered. And I've been able to help Shay, who was his partner, as she helped many, many people on the streets over years and years and years. And um, there are many ways to find meaning. And of course, you, one of the ways we find meaning is through sharing joy with people. And, you know, of course, there are many times. Another way of finding meaning is through just going through things together. And every time I see Shay, there's such a bond between, you know, there's this, the Persian poet Rumi, who lived in the 14th century, said, the wound is where the light enters you. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most profound, I'm sure it inspired Leonard Cohen to say, you know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, right? Um, Pain and we are all wounded by life, right? One way or another. Even if you're very, very lucky and you experience very little hardship in your life, you will be wounded. And and there's such a power in, Ernest Hemingway said, um, 
war breaks everyone, but afterwards you're strong in all the broken places. And I think that's not just true of war. I think about this about child rearing. So much of child rearing at the moment is about insulating children from any difficulty or challenge, right? And of course we should protect our children from, Mm. you know, abuse and neglect and of course all those things. But actually there's a degree to which children need progressive challenges to to grow, right? Uh, And I think that's true throughout our lives. And sometimes the the challenge is not of our own choosing. Of course, I desperately wish Tommy had not been murdered. I desperately wish he was here. You know, the last thing I did before the plague hit (laughs) was I went to Moscow and I interviewed this guy called um, um, Dmitry Leontiev, who is one of the leading psychologists in Russia. Actually, weirdly, his grandfather was probably one of the two or three most influential psychologists in Russian history. And he said to me, this thing has really stayed with me all through COVID. He said, you know, very often in kind of American and British philosophy, we talk about our philosophies based on the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even obviously in the American constitution. Yeah, the movie. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, there's a movie called <laughs> The Pursuit of Happiness, exactly from the American constitution. We, we think about this all the time. And he said, when Russians hear that, we just laugh, right? He said, life isn't about happiness, right? Um, he said, we think life is about meaning right? Mm. And actually, if you have a sense of meaning, you can tolerate a huge amount of unhappiness. You can get through a lot of unhappiness in life if you have a sense of meaning and purpose. Even think about something as simple as going to the dentist, right? Think about this, I've got to do this soon. Um, Going to the dentist and the dentist does something really painful to your mouth, but you tolerate it because you have a sense of meaning. You're like, oh, but he's doing this, it's agony, but at the end of it, my toothache will go away, right? Now, if someone did that to me and I didn't have a framework yeah. of meaning around it, it would literally be torture, right? It would, I mean, it would fall under the legal definition of torture, right? So without meaning, it's torture. With meaning, it's a necessary thing you go through yes. in order to get to some better outcome. And I think there's a lot about, we, we, what we've done in our culture, everyone, think about the junk food analogy again. Everyone needs nutrition. And what junk food does is it appeals to the part of us that needs nutrition, but actually poisons us, Right? In a similar way, we all need a system of values to guide us through life. And what these ultra-capitalist, consumerist, junk values do is they appeal to the part of us that needs um, a sense of meaning and purpose, but actually, like the junk food, just divert us onto bullshit. You know, like I was speaking, there's a shop around the corner from where I live in, in London, there's this young guy who works there, really lovely young guy who's having lots of problems. And so I talked to him a lot and, and he keeps saying, ah, oh, if only I was a billionaire, if only I was really rich. And he really thinks in his head, that's the answer. Now yeah. that's not saying he's come up with himself. That's, that's, he's learned that from the culture that's seeped into him from the culture. And actually I want to say to him, God, if I could introduce you to the billionaires I've met, mate, <laughs> they are they are more miserable than you, except for Oprah. They are more miserable than you. Um, you know, so yeah, we, we've got to tell, we've got to give people more accurate maps of their pain and their distress yes. so they can understand why they feel this way. And we've got to give people, we've got to build with people better paths to meaning. And that can sound very fancy and highfalutin, but can I give you a very concrete example of a program that did this? I would really urge everyone to fight for Australia to introduce this approach because it's not happening in Australia at the moment and it should be. So one of the heroes of Lost Connections is a, a man called Dr. Sam Everington, who's a family doctor in East London, a poor part of East London where I lived for a long time. And 
Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He's in favor of them. But he could see two things. Firstly, chemical antidepressants took the edge off for some people, which is worth doing. But often they didn't solve the problem. Often the person became depressed again. And often they were depressed and anxious for really understandable reasons. Like let's choose the most obvious one, loneliness, Mm -hmm. right? So Sam's looking at this, he's thinking, well, what could I do differently? And he began to pioneer approach that's now spreading all over Europe. And it began very simply. One day, a woman came to see his uh, doctor's surgery called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with just crushing depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I want you to come to the doctor's offices twice a week um, to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how shit you feel. You can do that if you want, but that's not the point of it. I want you to find something meaningful that you can do together. So the first time the group meets, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety. It was just so overwhelming for her. But the group starts talking and they're like, okay, what could we do? There was an area behind the doctor's offices that was just like scrubland, but it belonged to the doctors. They were like, well, we could turn that into a garden, right? These are inner city East London people like me. They don't know anything about gardening. But they're like, okay, we'll learn. So they start to watch YouTube videos about gardening. They started to take books out of the library about gardening. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. Mm. But they started to do something even more important. They started to form a group. They started to form a tribe. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would go looking for them and be like, hey, do you need any help? The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. Mm -hmm. There's a study in Norway, a small study of a very similar program, found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants in reducing people's depression and anxiety. I think for a kind of obvious reason, right? It dealt with some of the reasons why they felt so bad. And this is something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the deep underlying reasons why we feel so bad. Now, that approach is called social prescribing. Um, I would argue every single doctor's office in the world should have a social prescribing wing. It costs almost nothing. In East London, it's run by volunteers. Much cheaper than you know, the enormous amount of money we spend on drugs, although there's some value in the drugs. And the first recourse in a society where such an enormous number of people are presenting with anxiety and depression shouldn't be to say to them, oh, something's gone biologically wrong with you. If it was purely biological, why would it have exploded under COVID, right? It tells us something that it's risen so much now. And it tells us that it was rising throughout my lifetime and yours. And we need to, first recourse should be, okay, Let's think about an obvious cause that we know has exploded, loneliness. Are you lonely? Okay, why don't I prescribe something for that instead? It's a much healthier, Mm. deeper way. And then, of course, there's lots of other things. If they've had childhood traumas, talk about that, the junk value stuff. And then, of course, lost connections, I go through many more that we don't have time to talk about. But so we, we, for me, this, as I learned all this, and it was very challenging at first, because if you've been given a story about your pain, even if that story doesn't work very well, at least you feel like you know where you are. And there's a moment when the story expands and you have to think about lots of other things. Like when I was with Dr. Felitti in San Diego and I just couldn't cope with it. 
There's a moment when the story expands when it's quite frightening. You think, oh, I don't understand what's making me feel this way. I thought I did, but it wasn't working. Um, but actually, when we expand the story, when we tell richer, more truthful, more nuanced stories, we can get to the deeper solutions, both as individuals and as a society and as a culture. And that's why it's so important. So unbelievably important. Johan, what is the best advice you've ever been given? Your pain makes sense. (laughs) You know, you feel this way for reasons. That's one. Uh, There's something that my grandmother, my grandmother had a very, so I had a Swiss grandmother and a Scottish grandmother. Um, Both of them had very hard lives. They were incredible women. I was raised by my Scottish grandmother mostly. Um, My grandmother said to me, my grandmother came from a very poor, working class Scottish tenements. And she said to me, never let anyone think they're worth more than you and never let anyone think they're worth less than you. And, um, my grandmother really did live by that. And I think that's the best advice I was ever given because, I mean, I know this sounds like um, insufferable and Pollyanna-ish, but human beings are really amazing, right? Yeah. And if you can set aside the barriers and bullshit that's put between us and connecting with other people, everyone you ever meet knows loads of things you don't know mm. and has incredible... And I think one thing I'm really worried about at the moment, this is true in Australia, in Britain, in the US, I mean, c- catastrophically in the US at the moment, is we're becoming so polarised. In the absence of healthy tribes based on community, we're developing these very extreme tribes, online tribes based on political hatreds, right? And I have strong political views. I'm in favour of political passion. I fight for the things that I believe in. But this idea that you fight for that primarily by raging at and hating the other side and ascribing to them the most disgusting motives and just be... Look, there are plenty of things to oppose and plenty of people who need to be stopped in the world from doing things, but no one needs to be hated. And I'm just very... I'm very worried about this this move towards a kind of dehumanising rage that means we don't see other people. And this is really taking over the culture at the moment. It's so dangerous. Um, and, And I think... When I think about that, I think about my my grandmother and the kind of the way my grandmother would always meet people on the assumption of equality. And 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 there are beautiful moments of that. I'm sure you're seeing that in Australia with the vaccination centres. I know there needs to be more of them, but and we're going to the vaccination centre in, in in London, whenever it was, four or five months ago. And just you're just there with a random cross-section yeah. of British people. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. We all meet in this space of equality and we all wait in this room for this incredible thing that saves people's lives that is r- rationed out, not on the basis of how much money you earn, but just you are a citizen of our country and you will be, you know, um, my grandmother's job was to clean toilets and she would be treated the same as the Queen, right? Yes. Um, no disrespect to the Queen. Uh, 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 you know, the the we all get treated the same. And, and the, the, when you experience those moments of equality, there is something beautiful about them and we need much more of them and much less inequality, but also much less dehumanising yes, rage. it's humbling. What is the most mystical experience you've ever had? I've got a stupid answer to that, which is visiting the set of Coronation Street. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that can't be the honest answer. Actually, going to the set of Ramsey Street as well was close to a mystical I've been there too. 
Oh my God, it was amazing. I was devastated <laughs> that Guy Pierce was not there personally to greet me because he was my formative crush. And I was very happy to discover in Mayor of Easttown. Have you watched it? No, I haven't. Oh, so he's in Mayor of Easttown, the new Kate Winslet thing on yeah. HBO. And because uh, he was my like absolute formative crush. I, like I'm when I was like 10, I sort of realised I was gay by staring at Guy Pierce on Neighbours. <laughs> and uh, he's in Mary's Town and he's still smoking hot. I was like, this is amazing, right? Um, but um, for me, it's just been moments of like love. Yeah. I think about times when people have been really, really kind to me. Um, or, or times... Yeah, for me, it's just personal moments of of just love and connection that that come into my mind. Moments with my godsons, moments with my grandmother, moments with people I've you know romantic partners. Or yeah, for me, that's that that's the mysticism. Yeah. Is is that right? What is your favourite prayer? Some of Martin Luther King's speeches. I know it's it's almost it's funny. They're so familiar they become trite. But actually, if you listen to them, um, I think. Moments of collective courage are sort of my prayer. This would sound odd because he's not someone I admire in any other context, but if you listen to the the Winston Churchill speech after D-Day, yeah. sorry, after Dun- not after D-Day, after Dunkirk, the we will fight them on the beaches speech, you just think, God, it's this moment. You have to th- imagine yourself back into this moment where the Nazis are conquering Europe. They are murdering all the Jews, all the gay people, all the Jehovah's Witnesses, all the disabled people. And Britain is at that moment, of course, other people join the war. Britain is at that moment almost alone in the world, right? And is on the brink of being starved into submission. And I'm not a great kind of nationalist or anything, but Britain is, I'd like to think I would think this even if I wasn't British, Britain is on the brink of being starved into submission, right? And loads of people in Britain are just saying, well, loads of the elite, the kind of aristocrats are saying, the Nazis aren't that bad. We can do a deal with them. Mm. Let's surrender yeah. and let's cut a deal with them. And knowing, of course, that would mean handing over the Jews of Britain, knowing that would mean handing over the gay people and all of that. And um, and Churchill does this extraordinary speech that's just like, you know, it's the most moment we will never surrender, right? We'll fight them on the beaches. And it's this moment of just a, a group of people standing together and saying, even if it kills us, we will do the right thing. Churchill has that beautiful line, if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. Exactly. He was was amazing. I mean, and and, and Churchill is to me so interesting as well because, um, and it's a real lesson thinking about the tribalism, right? Um, Churchill was a terrible person. He was extremely racist. By the standards of his time, he was, I don't mean looking back, because looking back, everyone was. He did many terrible things. And yet at this one moment, when we really needed him, he saw what the rest of his class, most of the rest of his class did not see and was incredibly brave and was exactly what we needed. And to me, that's again a lesson about never write anyone off, right? Because you can look at people now and you think, God, you're horrible. You're standing for these horrible things. And maybe there will come a moment when that person who's saying the horrible thing right now that you find disgusting will be the one person saying the right thing. And one of the crazy things about history is you never know who that person will be, yeah. right? It's always tempting to think, oh, this person who's right about the following five things that I agree with will surely be right five years down the line. It turns out just ain't like that, right? So yeah. if you think about that, the, the, the moment of Dunk, obviously because I'm a Londoner as well, I think about this city was destroyed almost. And people just, you know, carried on doing the right thing stood up to the Nazis, it would have been easier to surrender 
and it would have been easier to work with the Nazis. And it didn't happen. So to me, I guess that would be a pro you think about, obviously I'm never going to, I hope in my life, never going to face anything as severe as the threat of the Nazis. But moments, I'm very inspired by uh, prayer-like moments of courage when people, there's a great, and actually there's a funny thing in relation to Churchill as well. So Churchill completely opposed giving women the vote. It's another thing where he was monstrous, really monstrous. Um, and in Parliament Square in Britain, in front of the House of Parliament, there's this amazing statue of Churchill. And a few statues down, there's a statue of Millicent Fawcett, who, I think it's Millicent Fawcett, uh, who Churchill completely opposed, uh, who fought for the right for women's vote. He would have been really pissed off that he's stuck for eternity next to her. But uh, And she's holding a banner in the statue, which she really held in life which says, um, courage calls to courage everywhere. And it's this thing about when you see one person being brave, it makes you braver, right? Courage is contagious. And I love that sign. That's another great piece of advice. Courage calls to courage everywhere. When you don't feel brave, look for people who've been brave, who are being brave now or have been brave in the past and it will embolden you. So I guess it's those moments, for me, prayer-like moments would be moments of courage, of bravery and of people standing up. What are those people standing up for? They're standing up for themselves. You know, Millicent Force is standing up for herself and other women, but she's also standing up for all the women who were not yet born, you know, who whose lives were made so much better. What were the people of Britain standing up for in the time of the Second World War? Of course, they were standing up for their own survival, but they most of them would have survived if the Nazis had won. Really, they were standing up for really important principles of freedom and democracy and, and, and their survival, which would not have survived had, had Britain and the other countries that resisted the Nazis caved in. So yeah, courage, 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 bravery, standing up for people less strong than you. What is a life of greatness to you? Yeah, I think about my grandmother. My grandmothers both had really hard lives. They lived to be 90. um, And they were just kind, decent people. You know, my grandmother, my Scottish grandmother, um, her husband died when he was 41. She's left with these three kids. She had to work every job she could. She scrubbed toilets. Even when she was very old and she had dementia, she always remembered that there were these... So she she worked in these public toilets um, and there were these disabled kids who would come in every morning and she always remembered that she would help them. She would help them go to the toilet because they couldn't do it on their own. And even when she'd forgotten almost everything else about her life, she remembered those children. And to me, that's such an important lesson about, you know, um, was it, uh, uh, is it Tony Morrison? He said, what, in, what will endure of us is mm. love. And it's funny, I have to think about this again because my grandmother's my grandmother would have been 100 in a couple of days' time. Um, and yeah, for me, a great life is one where you're kind to people and you treat them well. And, you know, I would feel like, I recently watched with my godson the film It's a Wonderful Life. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Do, do, you, know, do you know the plot? I'm not ruining anything if I tell you this because you find it out in no, the first no, 10 No, 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 not at all. Everyone should watch It's Wonderful Life. It's one of the greatest films ever made. It's, I think it's made in 1941, I think. Maybe a little bit earlier. Um, so a man played by Jimmy Stewart who lives in a small town is about to kill himself. And an angel called, called Clarence appears to him and uh, shows him what the lives of all the people he knows would have been like if he'd never been born right? To try to say, you know, your life had meaning. Yeah. And, and Jimmy Stewart discovers that he affected all these people's lives in, in different ways. Um, and he decides not to kill himself. 
And uh, there's this great line. He says, uh, no man is a failure who has friends. And to me, it's a wonderful life. I mean, it's an incredible film, but also to me, that's a great, it's a wonderful life test. It's a great way to live your life. If, I, if, I, if an angel appeared to me now and said, you're about to kill yourself, an angel could show you who, how everyone you got to know, how their lives would be different if you'd never been born. Would their lives be better? There's a very funny, uh, Stephen Fry, the my friend, the comedian, did a great sketch in the 80s where he does this with Rupert Murdoch, where Rupert Murdoch's about to kill himself and the angel appears and actually everyone's life was better if Rupert Murdoch had never been born and they're all holding hands under a, under a rainbow. Um, and the angel just goes more, more like, uh, look this way, Rupert. But, um, but so yeah, it's a wonderful life test is to me a great test. There are lots of people whose lives were better because my grandmother lived, right? And I would put myself top of the list, but that's egotistical. Um, so yeah, that's a good principle by which to live your life. Whose life are you making better? Yeah. If you've never existed, and, and whose life are you making worse? Because we all make someone else's life wor worse at some point in our existence. And the key is not to never harm anyone. That's an impossible bar. The, car, the, the key is to know when you've harmed someone, stop and make amends and do your best. Mm. Johan Hari, I know when it's your time for the angel to come oh, that you will yeah, be no. up for a long, long time because there are a lot of people oh. whose lives and people who are still reading your books and all the work you're doing whose lives have been deeply, deeply changed forever. So thank you so much for the conversation today. Oh, thank you so much. I've got this weird thing that my publishers, they tase me if I don't say it. Um, so I meant to say, if you'd like to know where to get the audiobook or the book of Lost Connections or where to follow me on social media, go to www.johannharri.com. But the good thing about that is you can listen for free. If you click on either of the books, you can listen for free to the audio of loads of my interviews with loads of the people we've talked about, like Tim Kasser, uh, the loneliness experts, all these people. I also had this like funny experience recently. I think I slightly offended a podcast host because at the end they were like, what's your Twitter? What's your Facebook? All of that. And they're all on the website. But then they said, what's your, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 42-year-old man, right? The only 42-year-old men on Snapchat should be immediately put in prison, right? Like, what are you talking about? I know, about? is that even still around, Snapchat? <laughs> and then it was like, I was actually like, you know that, that American show To Catch a Predator where they catch online pedophiles yeah. the next season of to catch a predator should literally be they go up to adult men in the street and say what is your snapchat handle <laughs> and if their answer is anything other than what is snapchat or no i don't have one just immediately arrest them right anyway i said this on the podcast and the guy didn't laugh at all and then later i looked and it turns out he's like an adult man with a huge snapchat following i was like oh dear i slightly offended anyway so people can see my social media there as well and blah blah but i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you so much for engaging so deeply with it and um yeah i really really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. 
If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.